The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. The three coming weeks will... God willing, see us making our exodus from the church home, which has served us for eight years. We'll be moving to new but temporary meeting place while our permanent home is being remodeled. And it happens to be my responsibility to preach to you on Lord's Day evenings during these three transitional weeks. After not a little prayer, I've decided to unpack for you three aspects of the great Trinitarian blessing found in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Yes, I know, I preached that at your baptism, Adam, about eight months ago. I'm not yet going senile anyway. But my goal is to open up this wonderful text at more length and in greater detail over these three Lord's Days. My theme, as I think about it, is an unchanging Trinitarian blessing for days of change. And my heart is that we would move ahead with a conscious sense of the marvelous apostolic blessing found in this passage. So I want you to turn to that passage, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and follow as I read its grand blessing. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, before I come to my introduction this evening, I have one more thing to say by way of preface to this message. Please, please, please take the time sometime in the near future, if you have it, to read John Owen's wonderful treatise entitled On Communion with God. In this treatise, he pursues the theme that Christians ought to hold communion distinctly with each of the three persons of the Trinity. I've just reading his, finished reading his 30-page treatment again of how we should hold distinct communion with the Father. It blessed my soul, and it will bless yours if you take the time to get through Owen. It also makes me feel, as I try to preach on this subject, what can the man do that comes after the king? Owen is the king of this subject, and I hope as your humble servant to give you a glimpse of the glorious truths which he writes of in that treatise. But before I can come to the portion of the blessing which I want to emphasize this evening, what our English translations call the love of God, I want to emphasize a number of things by way of introduction. The first thing I want you to notice is the apostolic authority of this blessing. We were talking this morning about the text that Pastor Ben preached, and it was being said that it was not 
a blessing or a wish, it was an assertion. And that's true, and I think he was right. But blessings are not mere ineffectual wishes. When they come from the lips of the apostles of Christ, they come with divine power. Speaking as the representative of the Lord Christ, the apostle of Christ pronounces blessing upon the Corinthian church. Do not think of this blessing as a mere human wish. It is a mighty divine affirmation through the lips of the inspired apostle. And that brings me to the second thing quite immediately, the unworthy recipients of this blessing. This blessing comes in free grace and undeserved mercy to a church that it caused the Apostle Paul perhaps the greatest grief and anxiety of his ministry. Comes to them after two epistles, and probably a third and perhaps a fourth one, in which he has expressed this grief and anxiety. And the point is this. If this blessing could come to them, dear brothers and sisters, then surely if we are Christians at all, no matter how we struggle, it comes to us in the same free grace and undeserved mercy. That blessing that we read of this evening, dear Christian, is for you, struggling Christian. If it was for the struggling Corinthians, it is for you. But then I want you to notice the Trinitarian nature of this blessing. You cannot miss the threefold, the trine or the Trinitarian nature of this blessing. Each of the three persons of the Trinity are referred to distinctively and particularly. This text takes its place beside the Great Commission and the baptism of Christ as one of the three great assertions of the Trinity in the New Testament. I want to remind you of the two other texts. One is Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew 3, 16 and 17, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see, both those texts could well take up many hours of exposition. But this text that we have before us this evening must be formative, and it is foundational in our understanding of the great doctrine of the Trinity. But then I want you to notice another thing by way of introduction. It's this, the unusual order of this blessing. It has not missed the notice of biblical interpreters that this blessing presents the persons of the Trinity in a different order than is commonly found in the New Testament than is found in the Great Commission and that which is usual. Instead of Father, Son, and Spirit, as is common in the New Testament, the order here is Son, Father, Spirit. Well, the question is, of course, how this unusual order is to be explained. It is certainly not to be explained, as some mistaken interpreters have done in modern times, but that by denying that there's any proper order in which the three persons of the Trinity are to be presented. Instead of the order required by the great doctrines of the eternal generation of the Son, 
and the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. They have opted to say uh, that these ancient and biblical doctrines are not true and that the order is not so, and they opt in favor of what we might call a triplet trinity in which the three persons are practically indistinguishable. No. No, no, no. The order of this passage cannot mean that there is a triplet trinity in which there are three identical divine persons. This view is the invention of modern Christians to influence by enlightenment rationalism. It radically departs from the ancient and biblical formulations of the Nicene Creed. Another more biblical and more natural explanation of this passage is available. The movement of Paul's thought is to begin with the work of Christ and trace it up to the Father who sends him and then all the way down to the Spirit who is sent by the Father and the Son and which applies this great redemption of which Paul is speaking to us inwardly, subjectively, and personally. The priority or centrality of the Father among the persons of the Holy Trinity is maintained by, among other things, his central placement in this blessing. In his treatise, John Owen confirms this view of the Trinity when he calls the Father the fountain of deity. He also speaks of the Father's distinctive role in redemption as the role of his original authority. He is the origin and the authority in the divine plan of redemption executed by the three persons of the Trinity. But then I want you to notice the distinctive ascriptions of this blessing. I believe each part of this blessing ascribes a distinct aspect of redemption to the three persons of the Trinity. It ascribes, as you can see, grace to the Son, love to the Father, and fellowship to the Holy Spirit. The apostle identifies these three qualities distinctively with one of the persons of the Trinity. So I disagree with that commentator who spoke of the grace, love, and fellowship of the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. That's simply not what Paul said. Such a way of speaking misses the fact that grace is distinctively ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ, love to God the Father, and fellowship to the Holy Spirit. Much better is John Owen, whose treatise on this subject is entitled Of Communion with God God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In this treatise, he teaches that the saints have communion distinctly with the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this evening we will study the distinctive ascription of love to the Father. Now, some of you may be asking a question at this point, and it's a good question. Does not the New Testament ascribe love for us to both Christ and the Spirit? It certainly does. I don't deny it. Does the New Testament ascribe grace to the Father and the Spirit? I don't deny it either. The New Testament certainly speaks of the love of the Spirit, Romans 15.30, and the love of Christ for us, Romans 8.35. Of course, but here a distinctive love of the Father is in view, and we must ask what it means distinctively. John Owen confirms this when he says that the passage attributes love to the Father eminently, but not exclusively. 
This love is peculiarly associated with the Father here, but it is not exclusively attributed to the Father. But then I want you to look at those words that end the blessing, be with you all. The specific blessing called down on the church in this benediction is that the distinct virtue associated with each of the persons of the Trinity would be with you all. And the things already mentioned are in view. It wishes for them a close connection or association with the grace, love, and fellowship mentioned in the benediction. In other words, it blesses the Corinthian believers with communion with these things. Just as a man and woman seeking marriage desire to live with each other intimately and to commune with each other personally and to have the blessings of that communion, that being with one another, so also the apostle wishes for these things that he mentions in this great blessing to be intimately and personally with us. Just as personal intimacy in marriage will change our lives, so also he wishes that a personal intimacy with these distinctive Trinitarian blessings will profoundly affect our lives for good. This means that this blessing intends that these things be active in our lives. This means also that to this end, it, this blessing desires that Christians constantly meditate on these things, contemplate these things, and live practically in close proximity to these things. To put this yet another way, this blessing desires that each of the things mentioned here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, each of them should be a powerful reality in our lives. As Owen says, this communion with the persons of the Trinity requires that we receive the blessing by faith and return the blessing in peaceful resting on it grateful worship because of it, thankful obedience because of it. May I put it another way? Paul wishes for them to have the object and the effects of the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit active upon them and in their lives. Now you can all see, already see what this has to offer you. Do we do this? Do you live with the love of the Father constantly in view? With the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ constantly about you? Do you live with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit filling you up? Well, this is what the text calls us to this evening. For this to be the case, these things must be believingly appropriated, constantly meditated upon, practically applied to ourselves personally. So this evening, for a few minutes, I want you to consider that quality or virtue especially associated with God the Father, the love of God, as it is translated in the, our English versions. So consider with me then communion with the love of the God. In the exposition of this first blessing of the Trinity, uh, Trinitarian blessing here, 
Three questions must be answered. What person of the Trinity is referred to here as the God? What do we learn about this person from this designation? And in what ways is love especially and distinctively associated with this person? First of all, what person of the Trinity is here referred to as the God? Now, none of our English translations provide a literal translation of the Greek here. Literally, Paul speaks of the God. The definite article is there in the Greek. And this is the normal designation of the person of the Trinity we call God the Father throughout the New Testament. The classic illustration is in a text that you'll be very familiar with. It's in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, the articles there in the Greek, with the God, and the Word was God. Now, an English reader could not be blamed for confusion when he reads this text for the first time. How can the, be, be, the Word be with God and be God? That seems contradictory. Well, John's words are saved from utter contradiction when you realize that when he says the Word was with God, that the Greek reads, the Word was with the God, that is, God the Father. Yes, the Word is also God as to his nature, but he is not what John calls the God as to his person. And that brings us to the second question. What do we learn about this person from this designation? Well, we learn that Paul is not referring to God in general here when he speaks of the love of God in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He's not speaking generically of God in this passage. He's not thinking of God in the almost modalist way that many evangelicals think of him. They just think of God. They don't think of the three persons of the Trinity. The addition of the definite article in the phrase, the God, means that he is speaking of the love of God the Father and not the love of God generically or in general. The love referred to here is a reference to love as a distinctive work of the person of God the Father. And we learn that Paul is not denying that the Son and Spirit are also God as to their natures when he calls the Father the God. As we've seen from John 1.1, this designation of the Father is perfectly consistent with the Son being God as to, a as to his nature. The Word was God. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the term Lord applied to the Jesus Christ and the designation Holy Spirit applied to the third person of the Trinity directly imply their deity. The way in which the New Testament teaches the doctrine of the Trinity is by saying that the deity of the Father is communicated fully, entirely, and eternally to the Son and Holy Spirit in eternal generation and eternal procession. And that brings me to the third and last thing. We learn that the Father is the fountain of deity or the source or cause of the Trinity. Now, don't think of this language as strange or unorthodox. It's the ancient language of the fathers, and it is the language of John Owen himself. The Son and Spirit are eternally derived from the Father through eternal generation and eternal procession. The entire divine nature is communicated to them in these eternal acts of the Father. This is why the Son is spoken of as only begotten many times in the New Testament. He is the only begotten of the Father from eternity. There is an order in the Godhead. It is a strict order. 
It's not an order that can be confused or may be confused. There is a first, second, and third person of the Trinity, as our confession teaches, and this eternal order is reflected in the subordinate places the Son and Spirit take to the Father in the plan and execution of redemption in history. Though they are God, they are sent by God the Father to execute his plan of redemption. They proceed from God the Father from all eternity, and they proceed from him in the execution of the plan of redemption. But what, in what ways, this is our third point this evening and last, in what ways is love especially and distinctively or eminently associated with the person of the Father here? What specifically is the love of God the Father to which Paul here refers? Now, as I've studied the assertions of the New Testament about this, there are four great manifestations of the distinctive love of the Father, which we must carefully and distinctively consider and apply to ourselves. Certainly, we must think here of the eternal love which the Father had for his eternal Son. The love of the Father is his eternal love for his only begotten Son. And so we read in many passages, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. John 3.35, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. And we read in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Let this dimension of the love of the Father be your dwelling place. Let this love of the Father be with you, in you, and upon you. Commune with the Father in his love for the Son. See in the eternal Son of God the same beauty and glory which the Father sees in him. Do you feel your soul dead when you try to do that? Sometimes I do. But then read one of the many good books on the multifaceted glories of Christ, the Son of God. Read Flavel on the glories of Christ. Read John Owen on the glory of Christ as the Son of the Father. And apply this to yourself in the way that John 16, 27 suggests, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Join with the Father in loving his Son. But further, we must think here of the predestining love manifested by God the Father in electing us to salvation in his Son. For those whom he foreknew, Romans 8, 29, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. James 2.5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor? It's the God there again. 
Did not God the Father choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But now I want you to turn to a passage. Look at Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Just as he chose us in him. Now you notice that he chose us in him must mean the Father chose us in the Son. Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention, or better, the good pleasure of his will. Dear Christian, let this predestining love of God for you be with you, in you, upon you. Meditate on it. Apply it to yourself. Dwell with it practically in your life. Let it minister courage and comfort as you think of your condition as invulnerably and irresistibly determined by the strong will of the eternal God. Because of God's election, your salvation is certain. Live in that knowledge. Dwell with that reality. Let it be with you, all of you. But there is a third dimension of the love of the Father, which we meet with in the New Testament. We must think of the giving love, the giving love by which God gave his Son to be the Redeemer. For God, the Father, of course, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, the Father, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let the giving love of the Father be with you. What will happen to you if you live in this knowledge, if you dwell in this reality? What will happen if you let the living, the giving love of the Father be with you? Will you rejoice in the great gift of God's Son to you? you will see this as the greatest gift of all. And I think, too, that you will begin to imitate God's giving love. The sacrificial, the giving love of God dwelling with you will make you sacrificial and giving in your love. Will it not? But we must think as well, in the last place, of the adopting love which the Father has for those in union with his eternal Son. The adopting love of God. After all, which person of the Trinity can adopt us as his sons? Only the Father, right? It is the Father distinctively among the persons of the Godhead who adopts us into his heavenly family. 
Who else among the persons could adopt us as his own children except the Father? And so we read, See, 1 John 3, 1, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Remember Watts' great hymn, I think it's Watts, Behold the amazing gift of love the Father has bestowed on us, the sinful sons of men, to call us sons of God. Concealed as yet, this honor lies by this dark world unknown, a world that knew not when he came, being God's eternal Son. High is the rank we now possess, but higher we shall rise. Though what we shall hereafter be, is hid from mortal eyes. Our souls we know when God appears shall bear his image bright, for then his glory, as he is, shall open to our sight. Or, we've already read this passage, but it's the point of the passage, after all, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 again. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, but not just holy and blameless, in love he predestined us, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And so I say to you, live with the adopting love of the Father for you as a reality in your heart and life. Be full of assurance and believe that the affection of God the Father is upon you always, even if he frowns at you. He frowns as your father. What a wonderful thing adoption is. Do you remember? I think some of you were there with me. A certain day in court when three children were adopted by two parents who loved them. What a wonderful day of love that was. But a greater and better love embraced us when the Father adopted us. So let us rejoice today in our own adoption, as many of us did on that great picture of our adoption that happened that day in court those several years ago. But another thing must be said here. Seek constantly in your lives the approving love of the adoptive Father in heaven. There is a sense of approval and pleasure that the adopted sons and daughters may go, of God may know and feel. And I am sure Paul wants and wishes this for the Corinthian believers. God has an approving love for sons and daughters who do his will. He has a chastening love for sons and daughters who are disobedient. Yet with all our faults and shortcomings, the father's children may please him. Yes, with all our faults and shortcomings, the father's children may please him and live with a sense of his smile upon them. Oh, does the Bible teach this? It certainly does. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14, 23, a couple verses later, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So then, let the approving love of God the Father dwell within you as a motivation for your souls to seek to please and know the approving love and smile of your Father. As he sees your practical love for Christ, as he sees his practical love, your practical love for his word and his children, do not think, because we're always confessing our sins in this church, do not think that because we acknowledge our depravity and our remaining sin, do not think because you are imperfect, sinful, and faulty in your obedience, do not think that you can never please God. Don't think that because we must constantly confess our sins that God can never be pleased with this. Don't think that the Father is only pleased with his children if they are absolutely perfect. No. The picture the child draws for the Father or the picture the child draws for the pastor may please them even though it is not a work of artistic perfection. Even though it is imperfect in many respects, the Father is pleased. You think it's great, don't you? <clears throat> I know my wife loves me because she makes me oatmeal and raisin cookies when I come home from a trip. <clears throat> she doesn't have to be perfect in every other way for me to be pleased with her. And we don't have to be perfect and for the Father to be pleased with us. He will be pleased with and he will reward our labors for him. You think it's great, don't you, when you realize that your wife or husband or son or daughter or father or mother does something just to please you? <laughs> Why don't we think about doing something just to please the Heavenly Father? In your life, what would be something that you could do that would please your heavenly Father? There's a question we ought to ask and answer. Your husband brings you just the kind of present you like. Or without being asked, he does that chore for you that you find difficult. Well, even if your husband isn't perfect, you still... Love him for that and approve of him, right? Well, let us do that for God the Father. What would please your heavenly Father if he saw you doing it? Last word. You know, of course, what I must say to those of you who are not yet adopted into God's family. This blessing is not for you and cannot be for you. But it might be. It might be. What is stopping you right now from determining to own Christ as your Lord and Savior? The Father offers him to you as the path of adoption into his own family, 
All the fitness he requires is, as the old hymn says, to feel your need of him. Say then in your heart, you prodigal, I will arise and go to my father. The only condition required for adoption by the father is that you simply believe and take the love that is offered to you in God's Son and the Gospel. Once more, let me give you this as a reason to read that great treatise of Owen on communion with God. He says these things. Lay down then thy reasonings, all the reasons you have for not coming. Take up the love of the Father upon a pure act of believing. And that will open your soul to let it out unto the Lord in the communion of love. This is what some of you need to believe and do. What Owen calls a pure act of believing. What's that? It is casting yourself on grace, grace, grace. Nothing but grace and believing that God's promise is made to that act of casting yourself upon his grace. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful. We're not thankful as we should be, but we are so thankful for the love of God the Father. We are so thankful for your love, the fountain of love, that you are, the fountain of eternal love for your Son, the fountain of predestining love for us, the fountain of giving love that sent your Son to be the Savior of the world, and the fountain of adopting love. Grant that these things for your people here, these unchanging realities, might be with them, with them all in these days of change. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.